Lingua Podcast live from Dessau is broadcast from Middle Deutschland and features all things languages. The show is hosted by our teachers, presenting students and guests from all walks of language learning experiences. Today, we welcome Peter Bartolome to Enlingua Podcast live from Dessau. Peter has trained over 500 teachers and is one of the main trainers of the TESOL course offered at Enlingua Leipzig. Also joining us today is my favorite colleague, John. Hi, Scott. Hi, John. Hi, Hi Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Peter, before we start, tell us a little bit about your journey of becoming an English teacher. Well, that was a good question because it wasn't in my life plan years ago. I've been teaching now since 2000, so uh, turn of the century, makes mm -hmm. me sound old. Um, but no, I, I, um, I actually have a degree in mechanical engineering okay. that I did at university in, uh, in Sheffield in the UK, and I completed that in 1997, and then I took a bit of a U-turn and got a job in banking, and it wasn't really for me. I spent a year and a half or so working as a business analyst, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the, you know, just sitting behind a computer and, and, uh. And uh, yeah, I spent a year traveling around the world. You know, I started off in, uh, I went to India and then through Asia, um, um, Australia, um, North America, et cetera. And I got, and I got back and I, I guess it was late 99. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And, but I was sure I wanted to go somewhere for the millennium. <laughs> and uh, I thought about, ah, you know, I'd like to maybe um spend a year working somewhere outside the uk because i'm originally from london in the uk okay. and i just remember northern thailand i visited northern thailand up in the mountains and it was such a great place i've spent three or four weeks there i think and i thought oh, i'll go there for a year and i really wasn't sure what i wanted to do but i knew there weren't that many opportunities um because they restrict certain jobs uh, to foreigners there so uh, teaching was a, was an option so I went back and uh, I did a, a TESOL TEFL course there uh, planning to stay for a year and then one year turned into two years you know I really enjoyed the teaching and uh, yeah in, in the end it went from uh, two, well 2000 to 2015 so it was there 15 <laughs> years um and yeah, so I really, I guess I just fell into it, you know, it, that, that's how, that's how it worked in the end. So after you got your certification for teaching English, what was your first job teaching English? I, I remember my very first class. I worked for a small language school in Northern Thailand, uh, CEC was the name. And I had this uh, Japanese businessman, um, which is funny because I was in Thailand. Uh, a one-on-one -on -one class and I you know I remember being really nervous you know very first class and it went much better than I anticipated and uh, yeah and it just kind of grew grew from there really okay how long did it take before you felt comfortable teaching English as a second language um that's a good question I mean when I have a new class even now I'm always a little bit you know I've got the butterflies nervous what will the students be like uh, that's not necessarily me being worried about my teaching it's more thinking about the dynamics of the classroom mm -hmm. 
but actually being comfortable teaching, I mean, you need to absorb a certain amount of knowledge and you're always going to get questions from students and there's always that question in the back of your mind, you know, what if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer and, you know, I need to have all the answers. And, um, but I would say, you know, there was a solid year where I, I, you know, after that, I got really comfortable. Uh, the first year I was doing lots of preparation, you know, trying to make sure I was really well prepared, uh, more so than I needed to. And, uh, but after that, you know, once, once you kind of absorbed a lot of the knowledge and you're reteaching subjects and areas and things like that, then it, it becomes a lot more natural. When you first have a class or a student and you're doing that initial assessment of their language skills, how do you go about with your assessment and how do you find the right material for the courses that you're teaching? Well, initially when I started at this language school, you know, I was provided with all the materials and told, you know, this is what you're going to teach. And some of the stuff was good and some of the stuff was really horrible. Um, and I think a lot of schools, you know, there's, um, unless you're teaching a private one-on-one -on -one class, a lot of teachers won't, at the beginning at least, won't have the ability to say, you know, this is the curriculum. Um, there is a, a certain extent where you can, can do that. But I think it, it, if you have a one-on-one -on -one class versus a group class, you know, a group class is always going to be harder. Everyone's at slightly different levels. Everyone's got different personalities. You know, it's, everyone learns slightly differently. So there's, there's never going to be one right um, book or set of materials that you can use. But, uh, you know, I, I just always try to find something that's going to engage the students. You know, half of learning, half the, and I'm finding this with German because I'm learning German now, half the battle is just making it interesting and engaging and making the students want to, to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so if your materials reflect that, um, then, uh, you know, you're ha halfway there. So, um, yeah, but in terms of actual language level, after a while you get a feel for students, even after you've spoken with them for two or three minutes, you know, and during the course of lessons, um, the first few lessons, uh, certain things will come out and from the students and you'll be able to see where their weaknesses lie, where their strengths are, and, and then tailor, tailor classes to those uh, usually those weaknesses and okay. strengths to give, to give the students, you know, a lot of uh, positive reinforcement in the language as well. Okay, so we both work for Enlingua, so we're both familiar with the Enlingua resources that are available. What kind of outside right. resources do you bring into the classroom from internet sources or from other types of sources? Um, a lot of the stuff is in, in my head at the moment. I mean, it depends... A, it really depends on the class and the student. Um, you know, sometimes I'll just find something off the internet. You know, I have this class. It's kind of a really specialized class at the moment, just once a week. Um, it's at this factory and it's the kind of management staff and they plate metal. That's their, that's their, the business, um, zinc plating, all that sort of stuff. So it's very, very specific. And, you know, sometimes I'll just find some materials online related to the, that particular field as if they have to give like a product tour or a tour of the production line or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, I just try and make it as specific as possible for, mm -hmm. for certain classes. Other times, you know, general material is fine for a lot of students because they're just looking to improve generally rather than in a specific area. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I get material from all over the place, to be honest. And in the company courses that you teach, do you find that the company is wanting English courses for the daily business activities or do students, are they looking for language ability when they, when they travel to a different country? Well, you'd be surprised, you know, when the, when the companies sign up, you know, I think they envisage um, it for the business purpose, which, and, and a lot of it is, but when you speak to a lot of the students, it's about, I want to get my English better for, for traveling or just for, um, you know, everyday, everyday life and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a bit of both if you ask the students, to be honest. Okay. So you, you took a TESOL course, you got your certification. How long before you started to train teachers yourself? Um, well, like I said, it was 2000. And then I was working in the language school for a long time. And then they made me director of studies. Um, and then I'm a bit hazy, to be honest. I think it was around 2009, maybe a little bit before. No, I think it was 2009. Um, there was a, a TESOL course being held at Chiang Mai University. And... Um, there was an opening for kind of an assistant trainer and they were looking for a teacher with experience and they were providing kind of a six month uh, course on how to be a trainer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I just took a shot and, and, and they gave me the position. And so I was kind of an assistant trainer there for, for a while at the university and uh, kind of uh, got my toes wet, so to speak, just kind of in the trenches, you know, um, the main teacher there was, or the main trainer there, I should say, was, um, um, or had been there for quite a while. And his name was Christian. And, uh, you know, he, he taught me a lot of stuff. Um, and yeah, and then after about six months, um, you know, probation, then we carried on for a bit. And then Christian eventually left. And I was able to, she was that, I was able to take over. The, the head position and then the, the company changed uh, to a company called UNITEFL uh, and moved outside the university even though it's called UNITEFL I think because that's where it was founded um, and uh, yeah I was the head trainer there for a number of years pretty much till I left Thailand so I guess I want to say 2011 maybe to 2015 or something like that. Okay is that when you came to Germany? I did come to Germany right at the end of 2000, uh, I think it was December 2015, yes, because I met my wife in Thailand, German, surprisingly. Um, and uh, yeah, we had a child on the way and we thought it, was a, it would be a good opportunity to, to bring, bring the child up in um, Germany. Um, Chiang Mai, beautiful place, but they were having issues with, with a burning season in kind of February to, I want to say February to april may time it was really smoggy the air pollution was got really bad okay and you know for a baby you didn't want the baby you know being exposed to that so that was another reason uh, we left and yeah i came to germany yeah right at the end of 2015 okay so let's talk a little bit about the tesla training in in germany who are your typical teachers that you are training for tesla well, first of all, a lot of people come in, uh, they're not teachers at all. You know, they, they come in and uh, um, they either want a change of um, profession or they want to have a job that allows them to travel. 
Um, so sometimes people come in with zero teaching experience and that is completely fine, you know, and to be honest with you, that's some, something that makes it easier as a trainer to train somebody who comes in with no bad habits or no, you know, if someone's been teaching a while and then they come in, often it's really hard to change habits that they have. Um, so yeah, but uh, people come from all walks of life. You know, we have, um, uh, obviously Germans as well here. Um, but recently we had, um, it was very interesting, uh, a Uyghur lady from, uh, Northern China. And mm -hmm. she was very interesting, you know, a lot of interesting life stories and things like that. So, I mean, people from all over the place, to be honest, um, all you need is to be a fairly advanced English speaker um kind of a, a c1 level or so okay and uh um you can you can get by on a b2 level if you're going to be teaching a lower level of english but we we mostly say c1 and how long is the course the course is four weeks um 120 hours um and yeah so monday to friday um i suppose yeah about uh, uh roughly eight hours a day or so okay so it's intensive. Yes, yeah, definitely intensive. Yeah, it's a very intense um, four weeks because you, we have to pack a lot in. Mm -hmm. um, so. And in the four weeks, when do they, how many teaching hours do they have in that four weeks to practice? Um, what? You get eight teaching practices, mm -hmm. uh, teaching hours, so eight teaching hours. Um, the minimum is six you need to pass the course, we provide eight. Um, and then the rest of it is combined with inputs, learning certain things that you need, you know, basic grammatical stuff, uh, language awareness, um, you know, how to manage classrooms, you know, all sorts, there's all sorts of things. Uh, the, the course sets you up. If you've never taught before, at the end of the um, 120 hours, you know, you'll be confident that you can go into a classroom and uh, know what you're doing and... Uh, teacher class. Now, it's just the beginning of the journey, you know, of course, as I said, at, at the beginning, you know, I was, uh, it took a while to, for me to feel more comfortable teaching just because I was trying to, you know, gain more knowledge and things. But that's, that's kind of a, it's a foundation course, really. Okay. Uh, Peter, I'm interested in uh, how you've developed as a teacher trainer. What, what are you, what sort of things are you, are you teaching the teachers now that perhaps you didn't teach at the beginning or how, how have you developed as a teacher trainer? Um, a, a teacher trainer is, you know, we've got the, we've got the inputs that we teach all the different uh, subjects and things like that. And I would say that hasn't particularly changed uh, the methodologies and those sorts of things. Uh, I think one of the biggest aspects of being a trainer, a good trainer, and I think a good teacher, to be honest, is, is just how you deal with different people, their personalities, um, and things like that so um, you know it's definitely a, a social job you're not sitting at, like a programmer behind a computer not speaking to an, uh, not speaking to anyone all day you're in front of people um, you're having to deal with lots of different people at once in bigger classes but I, I suppose my biggest thing is um, you know my, my, my main idea behind teaching is is, is giving everyone the opportunity to, to use the language within the classroom. Uh, I think a lot of teachers spend too much time talking themselves uh, where they don't need the practice speaking English and the students need the practice. So 
I always try to focus on the opportunities for conversation for the students, you know, where are those in the classroom? And then I make sure, you know, the, the, the trainees that I'm teaching, they know that's their, their number one job. Um, if someone wants to come and learn a language, they want to speak it. Most people, if you ask anyone why they want to learn a language, it's not because they want to read the newspaper or they want to do whatever. It's they want to speak. They want to go somewhere and be confident speaking. And the only way to do that is really uh, practice and get opportunities to speak. So the more my students and my trainee teachers know to, for the students to speak in the classroom, the better. Okay, that's a pr probably a pretty important tip. Can you think of one or two other tips that you would that you would suggest are, are important for new teachers? So um, one, one, or, one or two common pitfalls that perhaps new teachers ought to avoid. Well, one of the first ones kind of relates to what I just said is um, that, and I find this with native speakers more than non-native speakers. Because we like to talk. Sometimes they do. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, no, sometimes the, they don't, they can't put themselves in the student's shoes to a certain extent, and they use too much language for the, the level of the student. Now, if you're teaching a B2 level, a certain amount of teacher talk, as we call it, is, is good for the students. It's good for them to um, hear a native speaker and, and, and uh, um, you know, experience that language but when you're teaching a1 a2 beginner level students often i find especially native speakers they um they use the language is too complicated there's too much of the language it goes flying over the students heads and the students then kind of clam up and they lose their confidence because you know they haven't understood everything in the classroom um so yeah just slow down your speed of speech don't say so much Sometimes a little bit of silence in the classroom is fine, you know, to, to get the students talking. Um, that would be a big tip. Um, and yeah, just be, uh, just be patient. Like any teacher, you have to be patient. Learning a language takes, takes time, you know, it takes, it's not something that people can do um, very quickly. So um, seeing results from your students, you need to be patient and, and you need to be, um, as I mentioned earlier, engaging to the students. The best thing is to be able to engage them as much as possible and make it fun for them. Make them, you know, make them say, oh, that was a really good class. I can't wait for next time. Uh, yeah, would you have so, tips for teachers in Germany compared to teachers in Thailand? Would there be a difference or? Um, um, I would say possible? in Thailand, I was teaching a lot and the trainee, the, our trainee teachers were teaching mostly, um, secondary school or high school students down you know to primary school um so it was mostly teaching adolescents and, and kids you know some adults of course whereas what i found here in germany because of the rules and regulations you know you have to be a fully qualified teacher to be teaching in schools here so a lot of the teaching done here is you're teaching adults so in thailand they have this uh, word uh sanuk which is means fun and it's a part of everyday life there. So the students always like to have a lot of fun in lessons and, and we try and design activities for them around that. I found that Germans also like to have fun to a certain extent, but they also are quite serious, especially have adults about learning what they want to learn. Um, so I think that's just a cultural thing. It all depends. And the great, the great thing about the course and the job, I suppose, 
is that um, obviously it's taught in English, you're, le you're, you're learning to teach English, but you can take those skills to any country, whether it be Spain or Egypt, or Thailand or Japan, um, and uh, the skills will be relevant everywhere. And obviously there's an adjustment period for the, for the culture uh, of the country you're in. But um, yeah, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's probably about it. I haven't stepped foot inside of an English course or an English class in a German secondary school. Are they using CELTA, TESOL methodology in, in teaching English to the students here? That's a good question. Um, I mean, the level of English generally of the kids coming out of secondary or high school here is a lot higher than it is in Asia. But that's because I think the language is very similar. You know, if you've ever you know, learn Japanese or Mandarin or Thai. English to them is like, you know, Thai, Japanese or, or Mandarin is to us. It's so mm -hmm. different. So German and, and, Eng and English have a lot of similarities. So the, the level is a lot higher. I'm not particularly familiar with what methods they're using in the schools here, to mm -hmm. be honest. Uh, it seems to be re relatively successful. I mean, a lot of the younger uh, generation here are... Uh, you know, you, you, it's hard to find someone who's less than, well, less than kind of a B1 level. A lot of, well, it's not hard, but a lot of people that are B1 level or higher of the younger generation um, because they're exposed to so much English and it's, and it's kind of interwoven into popular culture and things like that. Um, so that comes back to the engagement side. You know, if, they, if they're interested in music, movies and things like that, they're bound to just want to learn a little bit more about that. But I couldn't really specifically answer the question about how they're teaching in, in the German secondary schools here. Okay. Um, they seem to be doing a good job there. So teachers can, um, or potential teachers, can do a TESOL course all over the world. They can do it also online. Um, um, what's, what's the sales pitch for Leipzig? Uh, well, obviously, versus online, you get the... Um, you get the, uh, the in-person teaching practice, which is, which is crucial. Um, yeah, online courses are good, but yeah, that, that in-person teaching practice is, is, I find really, really important for- um, But why should they come know, to Leipzig? And Le well, Leipzig generally is just a, is a great city. Um, it's a very livable city. There's so much to do all year round, whether it's the winter markets and Christmas, the lakes uh, in the summer, um, there's a lot of culture and history here. Um, I really, I, I really enjoy living here. Actually, you know, I was born in London, um, which is very different from Chiang Mai, uh, which is very different from Leipzig. But yeah, I've really enjoyed living here. I would say, come along, check it out, and uh, um, sign up on the course if you can. I'm sold, Pete. So, how can people connect with the course in uh, Leipzig? How do people sign up? Um, if people want more information, um, they can go to uh, tesol-leipzig.com. So that's T-E-S-O-L-L-E-I-P-Z-I-G.com. Um, and course dates and uh, things like that. So all, all the information is on the website. Uh, our next course, I don't think, is until June. You know, we've had to cancel a few of the last few courses because of Corona, unfortunately. Um, but at the moment, uh, currently June, I think it's June the 7th, is going to be our first course. Since what, about, what about job prospects after they finish the course? 
Well, generally, uh, job prospects are usually really, really good. I mean, obviously, recently, things have been down a little bit. But the great thing about the TESOL courses, um, um, we're accredited uh, by an institution that allows you to take that certificate to any of the centers globally. You know, they have uh, um, centers in Bangkok or Madrid or uh, lots of different cities around the world. And if you have the certificate, the, uh, the center there is obliged to help you look for, for work locally. So if anyone comes in, you know, we'll help people in Leipzig or in Germany. Um, if people come in from, from, from our course or they decide to want, they want to work in another country, they take the certificate and, and uh, that center will help them find, job, find jobs. And that, that's great because it gives you, it gives you kind of uh, job placement assistance globally, which, which is really beneficial, I think. It is nice. Maybe we can um, check out the website and get more information from there. But is that what you would suggest? Or can people also call? Or um, um... Actually, people can call. Just search for Inlingua in Leipzig. In Leipzig. I don't have the number off the top of my head. Uh, they could drop in. Uh, or not at the moment, but uh, soon. Hopefully, people can drop in. They can call. I, I think the website is probably the best um, channel for the moment, though. That's great, Pete. Thank you very much. It's great to have that opportunity. And um, yeah, we hope many more people take it up. Okay, thanks for having me. An idiom a day keeps the doctor away. Let's talk idioms. Joining us today in the studio is John and Ali. It's time to talk about idioms. Yes, it is. Hello, Scott. Hey, John. Hello, Scott. Hey, Ali. Welcome to the episode. Good to be here. It's good to have you. Okay, John, have you got an idiom for us today? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. What idiom would you like to talk about? It's the light at the end of the tunnel. So light at the end of the tunnel means uh, we can use this idiom when we're in a difficult situation, but that we can see hope coming. So it's a very, it's a very visual idiom. So we can visualize ourselves in a dark tunnel. And at the end, on one end or on the side, we can see light, meaning hope. So in this case, like the light symbolizes hope. So, um, so do you have an example of when we could use this idiom? I do. We have an excellent example happening right now. We've been in a lockdown. Uh, for about 12 months. Um, there's been stricter lockdowns, lighter lockdowns, but we're in a strict light lockdown right now. And um, however, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Slowly, businesses are starting to open. Kids are going back to school. Um, and um, corona cases are coming down. So yeah, I would say this is a great example for uh, light at the end of the tunnel. So that's uh, a pretty, pretty topical example, I'd say. So what businesses have been closed that you want to see reopened as soon as possible? Well, it's, it's been a while, hasn't it? I mean, everything has been shut and uh, for over two months, for three months, and mm -hmm. uh, only only 
um, grocery shopping and work has been allowed. So I'm really looking forward to pubs reopening, actually. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at your okay. hair. I'm looking at your hair right now, John, and I'm thinking like you might want to make an appointment at the barbershop. <laughs> yes. Thank you for reminding me. I might do that straight. Yes, the hairdressers um, would come in handy. Yes. Lucky enough, I already had my appointment. Yeah, Ali is nice and trim. He looks good. Like John, I don't know, man. There's yeah. one. There's one down the street. Yeah, oh, it's I on my to-do to list. Yes, uh, John, I had one question though. I mean, we talked about where to use the example, but can you tell us, like, uh, where does this idiom come from exactly? Yeah, I, I looked into it, and I couldn't really find an origin. Although it's sort of biblical, isn't it? Like the light to see the light. But I don't think, I'm not sure if it's that old. And um, in fact, it became quite famous um, uh, in, a, in a, quite an infamous speech actually from John F. Kennedy when he was talking about the Vietnam War coming to an end and that um, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Oh. So in a sense, it was infamous because the, the, the war didn't come to uh, uh, an easy end and it was quite a disaster as we, as we now know. Do you think this idiom has anything to do with near-death experiences? Don't people often say that they see a light at the end of the tunnel when they have a near-death experience? Yeah, in this sense, I guess its origins uh, probably come from like this uh, religious, spiritual, biblical. Okay. I have a hypothesis though. Okay, oh, what's that? Uh, again, not a theory, a hypothesis is that it might originate in America. Okay. And it's during when you had the whole process of uh, trains uh, being constructed through tunnels and, you know, like all of that stuff happening. I'm talking where, um, what was the word I'm looking for? Uh, so a more literal meaning, like we're yeah, almost finished digging meaning. this tunnel. Exactly. Because if I remember correctly, there were like, so many deaths during that period uh, with people dying, constructing tunnels. Yeah, but you're right. Kind of, but that's kind of where I feel this uh, idiom might originate because a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel can also signify that, hey, all this sacrifice, yet there is a, a result. There is like, at least we got something out of it, you know? Yeah, that's a good hypothesis, Ali. I think um, you could be onto something. You know, it reminds me also of um, of uh, a more tragically optimistic way of looking at the idiom as well, because not only is the light at the end of the tunnel maybe something positive, but it can actually be maybe something negative, like a train actually coming towards you and causing even more damage. Oh, yeah. So... Um, I'm not sure if that's actually what the idiom means, but it could also be seen in that light. Yeah, that's a possibility. Tragic optimism. Mm -hmm. Tragic optimism is um, not just being naively optimistic and assuming something will just be better, but mm. it's like assuming that something um, could get worse. Yeah, and so not being disappointed when mm -hmm. it does. 
So there is. So if we go back to the example of uh, the lockdown and, and light coming, or that there's light at the end of the tunnel, right? Um, what sort of things are you guys looking forward to? I would say pubs, back up. just like you. <laughs> yes, we're all looking forward to drinking more socially and not at home alone. Yeah, I've I've never been a big fan of um, the German handshake. No. Okay. Okay. I prefer, I prefer just to wave. Can you clarify a German handshake? A German handshake is generally um, the way two people greet each other when they see each other for the first time in a day. Okay. Is it a firm handshake? Yeah. It's it's often a firm handshake, yeah. yeah. Is, it a, is it a single pump or a double pump? Um, generally a prolonged single. Single pump. Yeah. Prolonged single pump. Yeah, sometimes I... Um, with eye contact, like Prost? Eye contact is very important. So okay. that's um, also part of the German handshake, um, German handshake. So a firm, prolonged squeeze with eye contact. Hmm. I could live without those. Interesting. I, I was not aware of that. <laughs> okay. Well, John, I think that was an excellent suggestion for a idiom for the week. Um, and I think it's a very uh, a practical one as well. And I think it's one that, that we can uh, use in our classrooms that our students would enjoy uh, you know, also. And uh, is there a German equivalent to that, John? Uh, yeah, there is actually. The German, the German equivalent is exactly the same as the English one, actually. Okay. Licht am Ende des Tunnels. Tunnels. Okay. So then it's just a matter of like... It's not, it's not a matter of context, it's just maybe a matter of learning a new phrase. Yeah. Um, as far as an English learner goes? Yes, yes. German English learner, yeah, they just have to, well, it's sometimes just a question of knowing which ones translate and which ones don't. So in this case, you can... Um, so this one translates almost this identical. This one translates, yeah, mm. so yeah. go for it, use it. Okay. Well, that was a very good example. Thank you for listening to Enlingua Podcast, live from Dessau. We hope you stay tuned for more episodes.